Sunday. Uh, why do you look forward to Sunday? If indeed you do look forward to Sunday, what is it about? Well, our answer will actually tell us uh, a lot about our hearts and about our relationship with God. Because what God is doing is he's moving history towards a new world. Uh, we know this because he sent his son Jesus into the world on a mission. Because our sin separates us from God, our sin spoils and corrupts the world. But Jesus came in order to bear our guilt, to justify unrighteous people, so that we could belong to this new world to come. A world where there will be no more evil, where there will be no more sin. And uh, we love God's Holy Spirit uh, because he comes into people's lives. He makes us born again uh, into God's family, shaping a people to become more like Jesus, uh, who then live out the values of this world to come where God's presence and his glory will be the joyful center of his people's lives for all eternity. That's kind of where we're heading. And so you see, gathering together on a Sunday to enjoy our relationship with God is in fact a taster of the world to come. Uh, the Christian church is a bit like a show house. You know, when you get a new housing development, the first thing the builders do is they create a, uh, a show house. And uh, you walk around, you think, this is fantastic. This is amazing. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a promise of what the rest of the, of the houses will look like, and they'll show you your, your, your future life uh, and the finished community. Well, the Christian church should be like kind of the show home for the future, to show in prototype what the future will be. And even as I say this, I know some of you are thinking in your heads, well, yeah, but. Because the Christian church is not entirely attractive and persuasive. Uh, but let's, let's be honest, most people's homes don't end up like the show house, do they? Uh, that amazing, minimalist, clean, beautiful, stunningly decorated home, what spoils it? It's us when we bring all our crud with us. And uh, the, the, the storage space is, is not sufficient, and so it just spills out everywhere, and then we have the chaos of our lives. Well, we've been seeing over the last few weeks that in this waiting time, those who are supposed to be the people of God are a very mixed crowd. There's a mixture of the genuine and the false, the true and the hypocrites. And so these chapters really are a challenge to us here at Charlotte Chapel. Which group are we in, in this time of waiting? I mean, what does God have to say to us as a Christian church today? Well, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. If you need a Bible and you don't have one in front of you, put your hand up, and the stewards will gladly bring you one. Uh, regular attenders at Charlotte Chapel, bring your own Bibles. These are for our guests. Uh, but if you need one, uh, just stick your hand up and we'll get one to you. And uh, if you have a, an app on your phone or your own Bible, why don't you open up to Isaiah chapter 58. You'll find this on page 746 in the church Bibles. Uh, 
I'm just going to read this chapter. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Four, day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to, the, to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and in, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has spoken. And he has something to say through the prophet Isaiah. Notice it's not a quiet word. It's a trumpet blast. 
The shepherds and the watchmen uh, were earlier criticized in chapter 57 for being mute guard dogs. And so Isaiah is called to give a full-throated shout. Wake up the people. Verse 1, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. He's addressing the people of God as rebellious sinners. And he's going to shout about it. What is this terrible rebellion? What is this terrible sin that the people have been engaged in? Well, take a look at verse 2. It's very surprising. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They seek me. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Now, if you were away on a business trip somewhere and you were staying the weekend in a city or if you are on vacation somewhere and uh, you are looking for a church on Sunday and you heard about a church where the people were daily seeking after God, eager to know His ways, eager for God to be engaged in their church, what would you think? You'd think, sounds like a fabulous church. That's the place to go to. But this is the group that God is calling to radical repentance. Rebellion and sin can be wrapped up in very showy religion. Religious buildings, religious services conducted by people wearing religious clothing is no guarantee of true religion because the trumpet blast here is against token religion. In the first five verses, it looks impressive, but not all is what it seems. They seem eager, verse 2, to know my ways, as if... They were a nation that does what is right. They seem eager for God to come near them. And the problem is revealed in their prayers and in their actions. Take a look at their prayer in verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? You see, the problem here is that it is a token religion. And token religion defaults to a pagan view of God. See, in the pagan religions, the the role of the worshipper is to try and pressurize God to act. Uh, To get fruitful harvests from the gods, you have to offer sacrifices or even engage in sexual acts with the shrine prostitutes to to get the gods to to, to understand what you mean about fertility, to to, to coerce them, to to give you you what you desire. And we've got the account of the prophets of Baal in that great confrontation Uh, with um, Elijah the prophet, haven't we? Working themselves up into a frenzy of of hours of dancing and cutting themselves until they're bleeding uh, just to show uh, Baal that they they wanted to send the fiery red fire onto the altar, coercing their God to act. This view of God, this pagan view of God is to view God like a slot machine where you put your money in and uh, through your effort and your sacrifice and, and, and you earn some output from 
the gods. You get your results. And of course, once you've done your religious stuff, you can go on living your own way, uh, do life exactly how you want it, because really the pagan gods were not particularly interested in justice or morality. And the tragedy we've got here is that God's people are treating God like a pagan deity, as if their religious activity was going to coerce and force God to do what pleased them. They are very dissatisfied with their religion. Uh, They're afflicting themselves, verse 3, with their fasting. They're starving themselves of food. And, um, And yet God is not coming through for them. He's not giving them what they want. Now the law of Moses really only called for a fast on the one day in the year, the day of atonement. But they decided to add uh, lots of extra fasting days, uh, to, uh, thinking that it would put God in their debt. I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Do you remember that? And the Pharisee is near the front of the church, and uh, in a great showy way, he, he boasts in his prayer, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, not like sinners or like that tax collector at the back of church. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This is a pagan view of religion. Making ourselves seem very pious and, and righteous and God is in our debt because we're showing uh, we deserve his blessing. Now this, of course, is the exact opposite to biblical religion, to, to Christianity. Uh, True biblical religion is is not about pressurizing God, it's about responding to his grace. It's not forcing an unwilling deity, but in repentance and faith, it's just believing and obeying his words. And the true and living God that is at the center of the universe is a holy God who cares about justice and righteousness. He's not just about sort of the religious moments, he's about the whole of life. And their fasting is not really about pleasing God at all. It's about pleasing themselves. They come up with these extra rites, these extra religious things, and uh, they're busily getting on in the rest of their lives, ripping off the poor to enrich themselves because it's really all about me, me, me religion. Look at the end of verse 3, the second half. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You see, we've completely misunderstood God. If we think that we can turn up to church uh, in our Sunday best with big Bibles, sing all the praise songs, put some money in the plate, and yet head home to beat up our wife and our children. Or busily get on with the rest of the week of exploiting our employees or ripping off our customers and to think that that's acceptable to God. Well, we show we do not know this God at all. No, Isaiah is told to to shout out against this token religion. This uh, mere religious mask seeking to cover over their sin and rebellion. Uh, 
um, liberal Christianity today still loves to, um, even though it sort of uh, wants to ignore lots of bits of the Bible, still loves to do uh, the dress-ups, the ceremonial, the organs, the choirs. It can still talk a lot about prayer and fasting and other forms of piety, but at the same time completely forsake some of the clear commands of, of God. But as evangelical Christians, we can also fall into a pagan view of God, thinking, well, if I do my bit, if I'm a good church member, um, I turn up at the prayer meetings, I serve each week in some way, that in some way God owes me to give me what I want. I don't think it ever comes out directly, but sometimes it subtly works deep in us. I've heard it in, in the parent who is angry for they've done all the right things and yet their children have walked away from church. Or, or the jaundiced tone of the person who feels that God has never given them the one thing that they keep asking for in prayer. Or I've had to deal with people who've had to uh, who are broken by churches that have basically told them that they've still got their cancer because they didn't have enough faith to receive their healing. That you put in a certain amount of this or that and you're going to get a result from God as if he is some uh, pin, push-button God. And perhaps the challenge for us as conservative evangelicals is the danger of viewing our Christian faith as a merely privatized faith that has to do with Sundays. But the rest of the week, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how we relate to our church family through the rest of the week. It doesn't matter how we relate to our society around us. And so this, this passage is profoundly challenging to us uh, about this charge of a token religion because then the Lord describes true religion in verses 6 to 12. What is fasting that pleases God? Well, take a look at the sort of fasting that pleases Him. It begins with, firstly, taking responsibility for justice. Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. God cares about how God's people treat other people. And this most obviously relates to how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also how we love and care for our neighbors and our community. As Paul said to the church in Galatia at the end of uh, chapter 6, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. As people who've been saved by God's grace, we want to good, do good to all, especially the household of faith. Remember, Jesus told that parable of the, uh, the day when the Son of Man comes in glory and the nations will be gathered before him and on the judgment day and he'll be like a shepherd uh, separating the sheep and the goats from each other. They look the same all this time, but there is actually two types of people and, and on that day there's going to be a, a dividing of them. And what's the difference between the, the sheep who will be saved and the goats who are not? Well, the king commends the sheep because when he was hungry, they gave him something to eat. When he was thirsty, 
they gave him something to drink. When he was a stranger, they invited him in. When he needed clothes, they clothed him. And when he was ill, they took care of him. And when he was in prison, they came to visit. And the goats didn't do those things. And the righteous will answer, well, when did we do these things for you? Whenever you did this for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me, Jesus taught. Thus those who are genuinely part of the people of God show this in the way that they love and care for the family of God. Jesus describes really the care of genuine believers, these brothers and sisters of mine. That we care about justice and righteousness, that we ensure that people are loved and cared for. That we look to remove the wrong structures that take away liberty. That we look to get rid of systems that treat people like animals. That we uh, help those who are broken by life, oppressed. That we love and care for each other so that people have the basics. Food, shelter, clothing. Now this is the sort of care that happens informally and more formally as a church. We have a fellowship fund as elders that, to help assist people facing crisis points and, and people willing to meet with others to help them look at their chronic issues, to help them get back on track. So of course we love and care for this within the church family. That's what we're called to. This is the, the true religion uh, that James described is to uh, care for widows and orphans. But I'm also challenged by the parable of the Good Samaritan, where that expert in the Old Testament scriptures uh, correctly defines the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus challenges this man to, um, to go on and do that, he then asks the question that we all want to ask, how far does this extend? Who is my neighbor? Because we're all looking out for, the, I mean, we're all, deep down, we're lawyers. Okay, where, there must, where's the limit? Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story about some religious guys who are not very good neighbors to the man who is beaten up, robbed, and left by the side of the road. Compared to the most unlikely person, the Samaritan, who at great personal expense takes the risk of stopping, Caring, taking this robbed man to safety, paying for his health care needs. Well, this is, this is the true religion that God cares about when his people take responsibility for seeing justice in their church and as they have opportunity in their community. And this is not just about um, pointing the finger at others. It's also about ensuring in our own lives that secondly, we're correcting wrong. If you look at verses 9 and 10. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger of malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, you see, we need to ensure that we are not those who oppress others, that we aren't uh, the ones dishing out the injustice, using violence and threats to serve our twisted needs, not to use violence and threats within our own family or in our workplace or wherever we have influence. That we're not those who spread gossip and suggest malicious things about others with our hands and our words. 
You know, if you want to fast, verse 10 suggests, well, why not give the food or resources that uh, you're not using to help feed those who are hungry? And seek to be a blessing to those who are oppressed and broken by life. Now, what is beautiful about this section is the outrageous blessings that God promises will flow out of those who want to obey what God says here. Because we have a God who loves justice and righteousness, then look how quick he is to bless and answer the prayers of his obedient people. Look at verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help, and he will say, here am I. Look at the second half of verse 10. Then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. See, when God's people respond to the grace of God in the gospel and align themselves with justice and righteousness that God desires, then we will experience God's empowering grace to become that shiny show home that will model the new world that God is bringing in. We will know, according to these Uh, promises, uh, a new beginning, a personal restoration, God's glorious guardian presence protecting us, God's eager uh, desire to respond when we call to him for help, clear guidance in the perplexities of our life, his divine supply sustaining us and strengthening us, Uh, a growing community who will also play their part to see broken churches and broken people put back together and find welcome and a home. This is what God promises he will do amongst his people when we love and care for others as he loves and cares for others. These are extravagant promises of blessing to claim as a church, aren't they? Didn't you hear it as David shared uh, the sense of privilege he had of serving and seeing what is going on in people's lives as he engages in the work that he does? But, you know, the the true religion is not simply about social justice, whether that's in the Christian church or in the wider society, because this chapter ends with the exact opposite of the token religion um, of the beginning of the chapter. If it begins with a sort of a a pagan view of fasting and affliction, the, the final two verses focus on the true religion of Christian feasting that delights in God. Look at verse 13 and 14. You see, knowing that our salvation is a free gift of God's grace, that God sent his son to forgive our sins, to bring us into relationship with God, it is the exact opposite of this pagan religion. You don't have to whip yourself up. You don't have to cut yourself. You don't have to offer up sacrifices to get God on your side. He has already freely given up his one and only son. What will he withhold from his people, having given his most precious gift? Now, we 
know the God who is there, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He does not need to be coerced or pressurized. We simply need to believe his gospel promises and we are right with God and we have peace with God. We're not condemned, we're accepted and loved and we're welcomed into his presence. And the idea of the Sabbath day is that one day in the week for God's ancient people, they would show that God was number one. They would rest from their work to enjoy delighting in their relationship with God. Verse 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then, verse 14, you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, what a contrast this is uh, from pagan religion. This grim affliction that thinks I fast and I do things to somehow force God. Well, actually, God is calling us to a joyful feasting. A fellowshipping with God. A day of resting from our labors and our works and our normal tasks to honor him. Now, for us, the... um, The Sabbath day has become the Lord's day of Sunday. And I wonder if we've lost something of the point of Sunday. Uh, I think maybe there's, there's a danger for some. It becomes like another Saturday where our goal is again to do what we please. And if it's convenient, we might go along to a church service every now and again. But I think we have missed out on the vision of what is promised here. Uh, The idea is a day where we think about not what will please us, but what will please and honor the Lord. A day where instead of speaking idle words, we can actually speak words that edify and build up the people of God as we speak the truth in love. Why not look to make the most of the day so that we can love and care for God's people? This is the vision that the scriptures hold out to us. Um... Why not come out to our evening gathering? Uh, If you're just sitting at home watching TV, let me tell you, you will have a better uh, joy in the Lord and a more edifying experience if you just join us for our evening service. Uh, Tonight we're going to be having communion together. As it were, just a sort of a picture of our feasting on the grace that God has for us in Christ. Uh, to the students here, can I suggest to you a wonderful technique that will help you get a good degree? You want to get a good degree? Okay, top tip. Work hard on your degree subject Monday to Saturday and take Sunday completely off. Determine that you're actually going to come and enjoy delighting in God. Enjoy serving God's people. What a blessing God in, has given us. What blessings are ours that are there for the taking? Did you not see them there in verse 14? He's promising us joy, triumph, feasting on our inheritance, enjoying all the goodness of the Lord. My friends, I think if you 
follow that pattern, working hard on your degree, Monday to Saturday, take Sunday off, uh, the Lord will bless you. And you'll grow as a believer. And you'll actually be living for what's really important. What a gracious, glorious God. If you don't know him, we'd love to introduce you to him. We'd love to point you to God's amazing grace to us in Jesus. Come and speak to us. Come and speak the Connect Corner about how you can find out more about him. My Christian friends, if you know him, let's make the most of the day that God has given us to feast on his grace and then to seek his empowering help to live out the values of his kingdom in our family life, in our work life, as we engage with the society around us. Because this is where history is heading as we await the world to come. Let's pray. Father, we firstly want to repent of all the false ways that we are tempted to look outwardly religious, but in truth, do as we please. Please forgive us. And we thank you for Isaiah the prophet and his trumpet call to us to humble ourselves and to seek your grace that we may be those who are engaged in a true and living faith. Oh, we thank you that you are such a glorious and gracious God. We thank you for your rich generosity to us in Jesus. We thank you that his death covers all our sins and his life and ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit empowers us to live in this new way that shapes us for a new future. And so Lord, would you continue that work in us as individuals, in us as a church? We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.